Okay, Joshua chapter 5, if you'll join me there. <clears throat> now, Joshua chapter 5 obviously goes without saying, comes right before chapter 6. And chapter 6 addresses probably one of the greatest miracles, of course, some of us know in the Bible, maybe one of the more familiar miracles in the Bible. There are songs sung about it and, uh, you know, how the walls of Jericho fell down uh, miraculously as the children of Israel didn't use TNT. Uh, there were no bombs. There was no conventional warfare, but they marched in faith around these walls of Jericho in faith, trusting and believing the Lord. And then miraculously, God brought down these walls of Jericho that seemed were just impossible and immovable that were standing in the way of the Jews beginning to go in and experience God's promises for them and God's best and highest ideal for their lives. And, you know, of course, in all of our lives, I think sometimes just like David faced Goliath and this giant-like uh, obstacle and, and enemy in his life, and sometimes we all have Goliaths in our lives, that things that threaten us, that are intimidating, that kind of stand in our way and uh, seem like they're just giants uh, that we can't overcome. I think in the same way at times we can all have walls of Jericho in our lives. There are these sometimes walls that exist in front of us and it seems like that these massive walls which are unable to be overcome in any way are just there and they're hindering us from experiencing what God wants for us. And sometimes in our lives, there are walls, there are hindrances, things that are holding us back, and, and, and we can almost just sense, Lord, this wall is up. Maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in some situation or some circumstance, maybe it's even just something impeding our progress from being able to spiritually enter in to the fruitful, victorious Christian life that the Lord wants from us. And I tell you this, God wants to bring the walls down. That's his heart. Uh, Jesus Christ came first and foremost, it even tells us in Ephesians 2, to bring down a dividing wall of separation, the wall of separation that existed between holy God and weak and sinful men, you and I, and our sins separate us from God. And so there was, in a sense, a wall of separation that existed between God and humanity, a legitimate barrier because we're sinful people. And yet Jesus came to die in our place upon the cross, to sacrifice for our sins, to raise again the third day so that that wall of separation could be torn down and so that we could have access to a relationship with God once again and access to eternal life as well as uh, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that that middle wall of separation also existed among peoples and sin just doesn't cause separation between us and God but sin causes separation among human relationships and it causes walls to go up. We use terms like that at times, don't we? say, I feel like there's a wall up between us. Uh, and God wants to bring down those walls in our lives, certainly that hinder us from his best, his highest ideal, what he wants uh, in our lives, the, the, the plan and purpose of God for our lives, the promised life in the spirit. And, and I think it's important for us to realize that just like chapter five comes before chapter six, when the walls of Jericho will miraculously come down, sometimes there are things that need to take place in our lives before God can bring the walls down. And sometimes we get disheartened and we think, Lord, why are those walls up? And how are those walls ever going to come down? And sometimes there are some things that God just needs to do first before he can bring the walls down. 
and God has a timing for things and God has a way in which God seeks to work and a lot of times that approach may be very different than what we would think in regards to the way that God would bring those walls down but uh, chapter 5 is an indication that there were some things that needed to happen for the Jews before the walls of Jericho would come down remember we saw last time in our study that at this point God has just miraculously taken the children of Israel across the Jordan River now so they've now entered in officially they've now entered into the promised land by coming through the flood waters of the Jordan as God miraculously when the priests put their foot into the water and they took that step of faith and remember it wasn't until they took the step of faith that then God did the miracle and his power met them when they took the step of faith and God stopped up the Jordan River at flood stage, at flood season, and they walked across, not on muddy, soppy ground, but on dry ground, and the priests stood there firmly, standing in faith, trusting God until all of the congregation of Israel and their herds and their flocks and all their possessions crossed over again, upwards to perhaps one to, to two million people possibly population wise crossed over so they now entered into the land by a miracle in the same way God once did a miracle of parting of the Red Sea to get them out of Egypt and slavery God's now done a miracle this time not to get them out of something but to bring them into something and and, and God here has just done this for them and look at chapter 5 verse 1 that's where we pick it up it says so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over. Look what it says, that their heart melted. That is with fear. They were overwhelmed with fear. And there was no spirit in them. We say, take your breath away. They, they were fainting because of the fear and they felt so demoralized because of what they realized there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel so chapter 5 verse 1 indicates to us kind of the sense that was left after God's just done this miracle again keep in mind we saw from chapter 2 when the spies remember crossed over the two spies over the Jordan and, and went into the area of Jericho and met with Rahab and discussed she said look our people have heard about you we've heard what your God has done the miracles he's accomplished and as the children of Israel were camped over on the other side of the Jordan probably the people of Canaan the Amorites the Canaanites these different tribal peoples within that land we're no doubt seeing them this I mean you can't miss a few million people with flocks and herds camped on the other side of a river and they're thinking oh my goodness they're about to encroach upon our land now understand they probably were thinking however we have plenty of time because this is flood season so the Jordan is running really swiftly and, and the waters are muddy and this is probably the least likely time. Remember we talked about that last time. This is probably the least likely time that they're going to come over the Jordan, whether they build rafts or what they do. We probably at least can wait until the spring flood season goes away. So maybe they were strategizing and maybe thinking of ways that they could get prepared in case the children of Israel came over. And now all of a sudden on a day when they least expect it to happen... God miraculously at the least likely time works in the most powerful way and sometimes that's the way the Lord works he, he, he tells us to do something at the least likely time that it seems logical because then he gets all the glory in the process 
He gets all the, you know, the, the uh, accolades for his great work. God does a miracle. He stops up the Jordan River, makes it dry ground, and the children of Israel cross over. And it says that when the people of that land heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan, word got back to all the different territories what had just happened in this miraculous crossing of the Jordan. It says when they heard that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So they were terrified. They were demoralized. Not only were they now taken by surprise, but they're overwhelmed with fear. Oh my goodness, the the miracle. God just did this incredible miracle for them. So they are nervous. They feel very vulnerable and apprehensive because they heard of what God had done. Now, from a human vantage point, would you agree? This would seem to be the absolute best moment to now go full on charge and attack their enemies, right? Their enemies feel they're taken by surprise. They weren't expecting them to come across the river at this point in time. And their enemies are terrified. When someone is fearful, they're more vulnerable. They're absolutely terrified. They're demoralized. This would be the time you would think from a human vantage point, logic would say, strike while the iron is hot, if you would. Rush forward. Let's attack our enemies. They're terrified. They're not prepared. You would think that God would issue the charge and say, go forward, conquer Jericho while the people are shaking in their sandals and take them over and and overcome them. However, we're going to see, though it appeared to be the absolute perfect time for God's people to go forward, God's time isn't our time all the time. And his ways aren't our ways, the Bible says. And his thoughts aren't our thoughts. They're higher. And, 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 and God never is late, but God's also never in a hurry. And, and God's timing is perfect. And, and though sometimes it looks like from a human vantage point, Lord, this is the time. I mean, it's so obvious. All the pieces look like perfectly lined up, God. We couldn't have a better, we couldn't have a better hand here, God. I mean, look at the hand we got. Lord, this is a winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner right there. Lord, come on. Should lay it down. This is it. This is the moment. Everything's come together. This is perfect. And from our vantage point, it looks perfect, but God always sees the bigger picture. And God's ways and God's approach to things are not always our ways or our approach to how we would do things. And God's approach is much different. And this is what we're going to see. Watch as our story goes on. We're going to see the issue is that God's people needed to be properly prepared before they would experience these great victories God was going to give them, before they would experience the fullness of God's plans, they needed to be properly prepared first. And sometimes that's a part of what God does in our lives. Kind of a few things generally we'll see in this fifth chapter here that God does to prepare them. First of all, we're going to see one of the things that God does to prepare them is he's going to take them through a process of spiritual consecration, or surrender to the Lord. God's going to say, before you can enter in, there needs to be personal consecration. There needs to be surrender of entering into a sincere commitment, a renewal we'll see through circumcision. Another thing we're going to see God's going to do to prepare them before they go in is there's going to be a time where they pause and just, if you would, have a time of celebration and worship where they just reflect upon the Lord and His power. And remember that it's all about his power that the works of God happen by and that any of their victories are going to be not by their own strength, but by God's power and how God works on our behalf. 
And then thirdly as well, another thing we'll see is, is God needs to bring them into a spiritual, if you would, a spiritual revelation or a spiritual realization, you could say. As Joshua has this encounter at the end of the chapter and he has a realization about some things that God needed him to be aware of. And this was another thing that the Lord needed to sort of do to prepare. So we'll see consecration and again a time of worship and celebration reflecting on the Lord and then a spiritual revelation as God reveals some things to them that they needed to understand before those walls of Jericho could come down. And this was a part of God's preparation in their lives. So here they are, the, the, the people of the land are terrified. It looks like the right time. And, and, and again, verse two, look what happens. And at that time, you're expecting to hear charge. But at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, poor guy, I can't imagine being a leader here. Make flint knives for yourselves. Okay, Lord, what's that for? Are we gonna use those to stab people? Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, it doesn't mean to give a second surgical procedure of circumcision. They circumcised the males among the people of Israel when they first came out of the land of Egypt 40 years ago. Those males have all died off. This is a new generation now. And they have not yet been circumcised. The idea is here. That's why it says a second time. This hadn't been done for 40 years. So make flint knives, circumcise the sons of Israel. So Joshua, verse 3, made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why, the Bible says, Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Those are the ones who were circumcised first when they first came out. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, the Bible tells us, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not yet been circumcised. So over the last 40 years, this practice of circumcision among the Jews, which they were supposed to observe, had not been observed by the parents with their sons. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people, the men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they had not obeyed the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua, verse 7, circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were circumcised because they had not yet been circumcised on the way so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. So look what happens here. God gives now this, I don't know what to call it, a rather unusual request. Right as they've crossed the Jordan now, they're there. The enemy is right in front of them. Jericho is there. And as they enter in, and Jericho, again, keep in mind, was a strong, fortified city. And, and there they are. And now God says to Joshua, Joshua, don't tell the people to attack. Joshua, I want you to take flint knives. And there's something that must be done first before we deal with Jericho. Before you take the people into the victories and the experiences and the inheritance of all the good promised land, there's something that must come first. Joshua, there's a need of consecration 
and surrender in the hearts of this next generation if they're going to experience my plans and my purposes for them. And the way that would happen is God calls them to enter in to this rite of circumcision which he had given to the Jews all the way back with Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 17 which apparently had been neglected and not observed for the past 40 years. Now, uh, again, that's just another indication of really, if you would, the spiritual indifference and the apathy of the prior generation, remember, that didn't obey the Lord, that didn't have faith to enter into God's promises and forfeited that. Now, that's why this next generation has grown up and they are the ones who are inheriting God's land and God's promises because the prior generation, apparently the parents were somewhat spiritual and different and did not bring their children into this experience that God had intended for them. Again, Genesis chapter 17 tells us that God gave circumcision to Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish people as a nation. He gave circumcision as a right and a practice to be observed for all the, the young male Jews at eight days old. They were to circumcise their sons. And God said very clearly in Genesis 17 that this was to be a sign or a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people. And again, the practice of circumcision, I don't think we have to you know, give a lot of elaboration, is basically a procedure physically of the cutting away of the flesh. It's removing the flesh and of course causing that area therefore to become all the more sensitive where the flesh is removed. And it was a symbolic thing, a symbolic mark that God asked the Jews to observe as, as a, a way to signify, to remind them of the way that they were to live. They were to be a people who lived not after the flesh, not after their fleshly desires and the, the drives of their, of their physical desires and their sinful flesh alone, but that they would be a people who in a sense set aside the ways of the flesh and lived sensitive to the things of God instead. That they were a people who belonged to God. They were set apart for God. And they were to live for God and live after the ways of God and not after all the other Canaanite pagan people around them and other cultures, but they were people who belonged to God and lived in a higher way. They lived after the things of God. That's what they were driven by and they were sensitive to that. Again, of course, we know this is the case. It wasn't just a physical surgical procedure alone because in Deuteronomy chapter 10, prior to this book we just studied, God directly says there to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, he says, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. So again, was God primarily concerned about just the surgical procedure? No, it was to be something symbolic of the covenant relationship that they were to have as a people between them and God, that God wanted their hearts circumcised, that he didn't want their hearts to be motivated by just fleshly impulses and governed by desire and, and, and that which was of the, the human nature, but God wanted them to have hearts that in a sense were sensitive to the things of God, that they weren't a fleshly people driven by fleshly ways. So here, this symbol of circumcision, this practice of circumcision, which God commanded them to observe as a people with their sons, has now been neglected. And again, it was a symbol, a reminder that they were a people surrendered to God consecrated over to God that they lived for God that they believed they belonged to God and they wanted to live the way in which God directed them and, and here God now asks for this because the older generation has neglected it that it would be observed because in a sense God is saying listen I want to bring you into the fullness of all my plans 
I want to bring you into the fullness of all my promises and all the awesome things I want to do for you. But before I do that, you need to be fully consecrated to me. There needs to be a a, a measure of, of surrender in your heart, a measure of commitment that's not been there up to this point. And God wants them to understand, listen, you need to be fully yielded to me. I need your full surrender. So God's here asking, if you would, for a time of of commitment, a time of renewal in their lives. Now, again, as we look at this from a practical perspective, think about it. They're about to enter into what? A bunch of battles, right? They're now face to face with their enemy. And would you agree, (laughs) this is not, the, from a human perspective, seemingly the most reasonable thing to do when you're right on enemy lines. They basically incapacitate, right? Their entire army. All the males, all the fighting soldiers, again, these are adults. These aren't eight-year-old children with a quick recovery process. These are adult males. And Joshua doesn't have a nice, clean, sterile operating room. He says, make some flint lives and and use a flint knife and circumcise all of the males so they subject themselves to this procedure in fact verse 8 clearly tells us the holy spirit god doesn't lie to us it says that all the people stayed in their places in the camp till they were all healed it took a few days to get over that i bet it did this was a painful process This was something difficult. Basically, they rendered and weakened all of the males among them in a way whereby, if you would understand, they made themselves now very vulnerable. Here they are now completely vulnerable. If their enemy attacked them, all the men were wounded and weakened. They would have been overcome and destroyed. And I think in the midst of this, God is certainly teaching them lessons of faith as they incapacitate their whole army for a few days Would you agree? It took faith for them to obey the Lord in this. You better believe it took faith. Joshua says, well, God's given me the first step towards overcoming armies. What is it? Well, (laughs) if you could actually line up. Okay, are we going to march? No, actually God's requesting something that we've neglected to obey that he's commanded us to do in his word. And God says, until we obey this area, we're not going forward. And so they have to submit themselves to obeying the Lord in an area where there wasn't yet prior obedience and making themselves totally vulnerable in a way where, again, not only was this painful and difficult, but, I mean, they had to completely depend upon the Lord as what? Their defense now. Because they just rendered themselves completely defenseless, their wives, their children, everybody. But what's God teaching them? I'm your defense. It's not the strength of your flesh. It's not your own abilities. It's not your own capacity to defend yourself or fight the battles. The battle is spiritual. I'm your defense. I'm the one that gives you your strength. And again, it required some painful sacrifice to obey the Lord. And sometimes when we obey the Lord, it requires faith. Sometimes when we obey the Lord... It requires painful sacrifice. Sometimes this is a part of making a commitment to fully surrender ourselves to the Lord. Maybe we have to make some measure of sacrifice and say, Lord, I'm all in. And whatever it takes. 
And Lord, whatever you need to remove from my life, if you need to cut some things out of my life, then Lord, it's going to hurt, but I'm willing. And Lord, if you need to remove this from my life and you need to cut some things out of my life, Lord, here I am, I trust you. And Lord, you mean more to me and being right with you and entering into all that you want for me is well worth some sacrifice and the pain that may go along with it because it was their obedience that would lead to victory and out of their personal weakness, and this is what this is, out of their personal weakness, that's how they became strong. God had in essence to weaken them in order to show them his strength and that it would be his strength that would be the reason they would win the battles that they would fight. That it wouldn't be about their own human effort or their fleshly endeavors and God saying, no, we need to get rid of your flesh. That's the whole problem. Your flesh is in the way. God's trying to say to them, listen, if you try and fight these battles in your flesh, that's the whole problem. Your flesh is a hindrance. It's not a help. We need to get rid of your flesh. We need to cut your flesh out so that you can experience full dependence, full reliance upon the power of God and the power of his spirit. And so here God calls them to this very thing. Now, again, as we look at this, symbolically, it represented what it did for them. And the Bible in the New Testament speaks to us, saying to us in, in Colossians chapter 2, that we have been circumcised in Christ through the, the putting off of our sinful nature. Colo uh, it tells us in Philippians 3 that we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. And see, this is a part of us. Even as they entered into the promised land and they did this, for us to enter into the promised life, the life of the spirit and walls coming down and enemies being conquered and us experiencing the fullness of the fruitful life that God intends for us spiritually, these same kind of things often need to happen in our lives. Sometimes there needs to be in our lives, if you would, a, a circumcising of our heart where we say, Lord, I, I'm willing to, to set aside these things. Remember when Jesus made this statement, he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He said, if your, 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 your right hand, your right arm offends you, cut it off. Again, that sounds painful, doesn't it? It sounds like sacrifice. But that's Jesus with just honest intensity saying, look, if anything hinders you from God's best, don't be afraid to let it be cut out of your life by the Lord. Just let the Lord remove it. And sometimes there are areas of our flesh where God says, he puts his finger on, he says, this needs to be dealt with. This is what's hindering. It's this. That's why the walls don't. This is holding back. And so if we can remove this, then we can bring you into the fullness that we want. And that requires faith on our parts to, to trust the Lord and that say, well, Lord, trust me. Let me remove this from your life. We need to deal with this area of your flesh. We need to cut this away. We need you to be more yielded to the things of the Spirit because this keeps inhibiting and getting in the way. And sometimes there's a circumcision, if you would, of things in our hearts that God needs to do to deal with areas in our lives of our flesh, of our sin nature. And that's a part of the, God preparing us sometimes to enter into all that he wants to bring us into, that we would learn that we need to depend upon God and God's power and not our own fleshly strength and trying to work things out in the flesh. Again, this is 2 Corinthians 10, if you would, from the New Testament, exemplified in an Old Testament pattern there, where there it says that, that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, it says, are not carnal, but mighty in God, able to tear down strongholds. 
and every high thing in our life that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Again, we experience things in the flesh, so then we try and deal with them in the flesh. We try and fight our battles in the flesh and fix things in the flesh and overcome things in the flesh. And God says, no. God says it's a spiritual thing. It has to happen by complete dependence. And sometimes we've got to make ourselves vulnerable. And sometimes God has to weaken you and weaken me so that he can then show us his strength and so that he can show himself strong. So don't be you know, hesitant of this. If at times you feel like, Lord, what are you doing? You're, you're exposing me here. Lord, you're, you're making me weak. You're totally weakening me here. Good. Because Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Isaiah 40 says that God gives power to the weak. And sometimes our biggest problem is we're too strong in our own efforts and energies and endeavors. And God says, that's the problem. Is, is, is you're so strong, you're inhibiting what I want to do. And so sometimes there's a weakening that God does. And God sort of, if you would, cuts out of our lives some things and lets us, like verse 8, go through sort of a healing process. And he says, now you're weakened. And as you're healing and you're learning, you have to trust me. You have to depend upon me. Then there's a part of a preparation that's beginning to take place in our lives. Verse 9 says, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. So as they went through this circumcision process and waited there for a few days, God says one of the things that happened as well in the midst of this is God says, I have rolled away or taken away, removed the reproach, the shame of Egypt from you. And the name Gilgal, which is where this happened, that literally means a circle or a rolling place. And so this would be a monumental place, Gilgal, where they first came into the land. Remember, it was the place where they set up the monumental stones. And this would be a place where they always reflected upon. This was home base where, where something really happened at the beginning of experiencing all of God's plans and purposes for their lives. And God says, part of the reason I'm doing this is he says, I, I am now removing or taking away from you the reproach of your old life and your old ways in Egypt and the world. And what a beautiful thing, because up to this point, all really Israel was known as was they were really, in a sense, known as a group of just runaway slaves of escaped slaves from Egypt. That's what they were. And God says, listen, that's who you were. That's not who you are anymore. I've delivered you from that. That's not your identity anymore. That may have been who you once were and what you once did and what you were once known for. But God says, I want to take away that old reproach from you. I want to remove from you that old identity that people looked upon you with or perhaps even that they began to look upon themselves with. That's what we are. We're just, you know, we're just worthless, escaped slaves from Egypt. And God said, no, you are delivered, redeemed children of God who I brought out of Egypt and you are slaves no longer. Now you're heirs of the promises of God and God wants to bring him into his fullness. And what a wonderful thing that even as God took away this shame and reproach from them of their old identity, that God desires how much more in Jesus and through the cleansing blood of Jesus to do the exact same for you and I. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. You know, I'm certain in this room today, Egypt is a type of the world and the world system. And it's a picture of our old life when we lived as slaves to sin. And we did things probably that we're not too proud about. And that brought shame and reproach upon us. And God says, listen, 
in Christ, I've removed that reproach. I've removed that shame. And your commitment to me, that's an old identity and that identity has gone from my perspective. That's not who you are anymore. So people shouldn't look at us that way anymore because we're cleansed, we're new, we're under the blood of Christ and we need to know our identity as a Christian. We're new in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are new. But even more than that, God's telling them, I've rolled away your reproach. So listen, if God's taken away your reproach and your shame, stop living in shame yourself. Stop living in shame. From God's perspective, there's no more shame. There's no more reproach. God sees you cleansed, washed as a child of God in your new identity in Christ. Believe that. Accept that new identity. That's what the power and the blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes for us. And God wants us to know that because if we know our new identity, then with faith we will fearlessly and courageously walk in the experiences of God that he has for us. If not, if we're self-deprecating and, oh, I'm just, I'm just worth them, and we just wallow in the shame of who we once were, we will inhibit our spiritual growth and we will never step into the works of God for our lives. We'll never experience all of his promises and his plans and his purposes for us and the power he wants to show us because in unbelief, in a self-deprecating mindset, believe who you are, your new identity. God has rolled away that reproach from your life of Egypt. It doesn't exist anymore in Jesus. Verse 10 says, Now the children of Israel then camped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So notice now after a short delay with the circumcision, again, now God pushes the pause button once again. And now it says for the next week, they celebrate the feast of Passover at this point in time. Now, remember, the feast of Passover was that annual time of celebration when they reflected upon what? The power of God and how the power of God and his works, remember, delivered them out of Egypt and how the wrath of God passed over their lives when God brought the plague of the firstborn to judge Pharaoh and all of Egypt at that time. And so as they celebrated Passover, it was a time where basically they stopped in a time of worship and celebration of the power of God and God's great works. And here, before God takes them into the land, before God brings down the walls of Jericho and, and gets them moving forward in the things of the Lord and taking steps, God says, listen, do you know what matters more than anything else? Just stop right there and worship. Just worship. Before you work, before you engage in battle or anything else, he says, there's nothing more important. Just pause and worship and reflect upon my power and my works. And that time of worship, again, was another part of preparation for their hearts for the battles ahead because as they worshiped in Passover, they, again, they were not focusing upon anything other than the power of God and the works of God. That's what they reflected in Passover. And as they're about to enter into what God wants for them, and as God is about to work on their behalf, God does not want, again, their focus to be on themselves, their own military strength, their own human strategies. Do you know what he wants their focus to be upon? The Lord and his power and his works and what they've seen God do before so that as they walk forward and face the next obstacle which is the walls of Jericho when they look at the walls of Jericho what would be fresh in their minds? 
the power of God, the works of God, not again self-focus or, or self-limitations or, or oh my goodness the obstacles. God says no, I want your focus to be upon the Lord. And I'll tell you something. As we face the walls in our lives, the barriers, the hindrances, the things that keep us from God's will, from God's promises, from God's plans, from experiencing victory over sin or, or, or the things that God intends for us, a lot of times one of the biggest things that becomes self-defeating in our lives is we're too focused on ourselves. We become so introspective sometimes and so focused on ourselves and, and what we've failed at and what we can't do and, and, and we get so consumed in that when the reality is, is God says, no, you need to be focused on me, what the Lord can do, his power, his works, and, and that everything that's happened in this whole spiritual life has all happened because God initiated it. God gave us our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Passover experience, and it's his power and works that are going to enable us to face every other thing. It's not like God saves us and that says, okay, now the rest of the spiritual life's on you. But sometimes we live that way. When, when the Bible tells us in the New Testament, don't try and perfect in the flesh what God began in the spirit. God began the work. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is why times of worship and pausing to celebrate and just be in God's presence like they did there when they celebrated Passover are essential to helping us walk forward because then our focus is upon the Lord and we believe what he's able to do. He can defeat victory in my life. He can bring the walls down. He can remove the hindrances. And all I need to do is just trust the Lord. And believe in what he's able to do. Again, it's faith, the Bible tells us, that allows us to inherit the promises of God. It's believing in him and what he's able to do, not what we are. It tells us, verse 11 then, on that day they ate of the produce of the land after the Passover, the unleavened bread, the parched grain on the very same day. Verse 12, and then the manna, remember that miraculous manna that showed up every morning for 40 years in the wilderness? On that day the manna ceased after they'd eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they now ate of the food of the land of Canaan that year. So again, this is the beginning of the, the culmination of experiencing God's promises. In the same way, the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night probably, I believe, ceased and no longer existed once they crossed over the Jordan it tells us now, as soon as they partake for the first time, if you would, of the food, the fruit, and the benefit of the land of Canaan, the promised land God had for them, it says it was on that day that that miraculous manna, remember that was there every morning, they woke up and it was there waiting for them to gather to eat. It was, in a sense, miraculous provision every single day through 40 years in the wilderness. And it says it was on that day, once they partook of the fruit of the land, the food of the land, that the manna ceased and they ate it no longer. So God brought an end, if you would, to that season, to that time. And God, if you would here, you could say verse 11 and 12, God kind of alters the way of his provision now. Up to this point, he was providing supernaturally, miraculously. Imagine a 40-year-long miracle. Not a bad deal, huh? 40-year-long miracle every day. God faithfully provided that manna again and again and again. Why? Because they were in a desert. 
They couldn't plant crops and, you know, establish vineyards. They were wandering around in a desert wilderness for 40 years. So they needed this miraculous supernatural provision in this way for a season. And sometimes the Lord will provide miraculously, supernaturally, in extraordinary ways when it's necessary. But then there may come a time where the Lord alters the way in which he provides. And now, if you would, they begin to realize that God was still providing, but now God was providing in a very ordinary way. They were just eating the food of the land, the fruit of the land that God brought them into as an inheritance. And, and I think it's a, a, just a good reminder to us. Can God provide miraculously, supernaturally sometimes? Yes. And praise the Lord when he does it, right? When he just through some miraculous way does something really awesome and it's like, wow, Lord, it's incredible. And just some miraculous provision comes to pass. Whatever channel God brings it through had nothing to do with us and God just miraculously comes through for us. But listen, God at times also is still the one providing even if it's just in very ordinary ways. Like picking the fruit and working the land yourself. <laughs> And sometimes through very ordinary means, that is just as much God's provision as the extraordinary ways. Don't super spiritualize things. If one man said, same God, just a different bucket. Right? And sometimes God does that. God may use the miracle bucket and God may use the mundane bucket, which is go out and get a job, work, be a good steward of your money. But again, at the end of the day, it's all God's provision. It's God's blessing. It's God's providing for us. And we need to acknowledge that just as much, Lord, thank you. Just because the miracle stopped didn't mean they should say, okay, well, we don't have to thank God anymore. No, God, thank you for this land, for this fruitful land. Thank you for these new things. And God now wants them to live in a new way and partake of the fruit of God's promises they occupied. And of course, this too just becomes a picture of how God at times wants to transition our lives and take us maybe from a season we were in where we were kind of wandering and meandering out in the wilderness and God was, if you would, kind of having to do a little extra and God says, listen, but I want to take you into the fruitful experience, the experiencing the fruit of the Spirit as you walk in the Spirit and I want to bring you into a new season, a transition where you learn to cooperatively yield to the Lord and take steps of obedience and walk in the Spirit and you begin to enjoy, in a sense, a new way of living spiritually. And this is, of course, pictured even as they began a new way of living as one thing ceased and something new began. And perhaps that's what God wants for some of you, even in this room tonight, that God says, look, that way of your spiritual life, that needs to come to an end now. We need to grow up. And, and that season of immaturity, and, and that, that just needs, that, we, that needs to cease. And we need to grow up now. We need to put away the bottle. And we need to eat the meat. And we need to move forward and live off of the fruit of the things of the Spirit as God intended by experiencing His promises by faith and a life of obedience. Verse 13, 14, and 15. Now Joshua gets a little encounter. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, and this leads us into where we're going next week, that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now when somebody's got their sword drawn in their hand, that means they're ready for battle. He sees this man with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, uh, are you for us or for our adversary? So that's a good military question. 
There he is. He's walking around. He's thinking about the battle plan for the walls of Jericho and thinking as the general of Israel now, wow, Lord, I've, I, mean, I have military experience, but I've, I've never faced anything like Jericho. And he's probably walking around thinking about this. Maybe he's even a little concerned. And now all of a sudden he lifts up his eyes. Maybe he's been praying or maybe he's been looking down and he sees standing in front of him here this, this individual and he's got a sword drawn. So Joshua says, whoa, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Who are you with here? Whose side are you on? Are you for us or our adversaries? Verse 14, so he answered, no. He doesn't answer the question Joshua was expecting. Are you for us or are you for them? For Friend or you foe, what are you? He says, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. Sound familiar, Moses? For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So notice here, Joshua, again, likely wondering about the battle plan for the days of head. He now encounters this individual and I personally, again, this is just my own conviction. I, I think as you look at it, it, it begins to give indication of it. I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. As you look at the, the encounter here, a few things. First of all, notice it tells us here, he calls himself the commander of the army of the Lord. So first of all, I think this individual, this personage is saying to Joshua, listen, I, I'm not the commander of, in a sense, necessarily the enemy's armies, nor am I so much concerned about, in a sense, your army. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua, there's a third army that you're not aware of. It's called a spiritual army of all the heavenly hosts and all the angelic beings. And that's why all your battles in, in, in the land of Canaan are going to be so lopsided. Because there's a third army that's at work in the realm of the spirit bringing about the victories that you're going to experience as the people of God. We also read in our text here, it says, notice that Joshua fell on his face as he recognized who this was and he worshipped. Now, again, let me just say, angels in the Bible never receive worship. I just read this morning, in fact, in my devotions, book of Revelation, now Revelation chapter 19, and John at one point becomes so overwhelmed with all the experiences and the, the visions and the things that he's seeing. At one point, it says he falls down at the feet of an angelic messenger that's revealing things to him and he starts to, to worship and the angel says, what are you doing? Don't do that. Worship God. In other words, an angel will not receive worship. And here there's no, if you would, stopping or refraining Joshua from worshiping here. So if this was an angel, no doubt the angels, like they have in other places of the Bible, would say, stop, what are you doing, Joshua? Don't worship me. But here Joshua falls in worship. There's no stopping him from doing such. As well as verse 15, that interesting statement, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. Same thing, remember, burning bush experience with Moses, the prior commander of all of Israel that God said to Moses. And no doubt Joshua had heard about the story and the burning bush and how God said this to Moses. So I think there are many indications here that this is the Lord, probably a pre-incarnate appearance prior to Christ coming to earth, here revealing himself. And in a sense, here's what's happening. The Lord is showing up and appearing to Joshua in a moment, probably when he's kind of feeling a little vulnerable. 
He's feeling concerned. He's about to face a huge obstacle, Jericho, and he has to lead the people and he's feeling probably a little bit overwhelmed as a leader thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to lead the people? God, you said you'd be with me. What's the battle plan? What do I do? And, and in a sense, here's what the Lord is saying as he says to him, as the commander of the Lord's army, I have come. He's saying to him first and foremost, Joshua, here is step number one in the battle plan. You're not in charge. I'm the commander. Joshua, you're just the sergeant. You're not in charge here. I'm in charge. Joshua, step number one, if you want to experience victory in battles, you have to accept, you have to recognize you are not in charge. And that's a good thing. In fact, for somebody like Joshua, that would be a relief. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm not in charge. Lord, you're in charge. And you know what? For our lives, sometimes part of the process of the Lord preparing us is he's got to bring us to a place where he gets us alone. He gets our attention like Joshua. And he says here, listen, I want to bring the walls down. But step number one in the battle plan, you need to accept you're not in charge. You're not in charge. You need to let go. You need to let me work. This is not your problem. These are not your walls to bring down. I'm in charge. You just do what I tell you to do. Let me be the commander. You just follow my lead. That's what Joshua does here. You see the submission of his heart. It says, he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? See, there's the key. I'm not in charge. The Lord is. And my job is one thing. Lord, I'm just your servant here. What do you want me to do? Give me instructions and I'll follow. You tell me where to march. You tell me where not to march. You tell me when to charge. You tell me when to sit still. Lord, you just tell me what to do. And Lord, I thank you so much that I don't have to be in charge. And what also I think the Lord wanted to show Joshua is, Joshua, I'm here with you. As the commander of the Lord's army, I've come. This is holy ground. That ground was no different than any other ground of dirt around them. But the thing that made it holy was what? The presence of the Lord. And when you have the presence of the Lord with you, leading you, and you realize he's in charge and you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You're in a really good place because now you're in step with God. Now you're prepared to let God lead and God be the commander in chief and God be the captain and you just be the buck private soldier saying, Lord, wherever you say, give me my marching orders. And all of a sudden we begin to experience God's best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your...